Book One, Chapter Four, Part Two of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Four, Part Two. After an instant's hesitation, Midwinter took a step nearer. "'I have been thinking of your future and mine,' he said. "'I have been thinking of the time when your way in life and my way in life will be two ways instead of one.' "'Here's the daybreak,' cried Alan. "'Look up at the masts. They're beginning to get clear again already. I beg your pardon. What were you saying?' Midwinter made no reply. The struggle between the hereditary superstition that was driving him on and the unconquerable affection for Alan that was holding him back, suspended the next words on his lips. He turned aside his face in speechless suffering. Oh, my father, he thought, better have killed me on that day when I lay on your bosom than have let me live for this. What's that about the future? persisted Alan. I was looking for the daylight. I didn't hear. Midwinter controlled himself and answered. You have treated me with your usual kindness, he said in planning to take me with you to Thorpe Ambrose. I think, on reflection, I had better not intrude myself where I am not known and not expected. His voice faltered, and he stopped again. The more he shrank from it, the clearer the picture of the happy life that he was resigning rose on his mind. Allan's thoughts instantly reverted to the mystification about the new steward which he had practiced on his friend when they were consulting together in the cabin of the yacht. Has he been turning it over in his mind, wondered Alan, and is he beginning at last to suspect the truth? I'll try him. Talk as much nonsense, my dear fellow, as you like, he rejoined, but don't forget you are engaged to see me established at Thorpe Ambrose and to give me your opinion of the new steward. Midwinter suddenly stepped forward again, close to Alan. I am not talking about your steward or your estate, he burst out passionately. I am talking about myself. Do you hear? Myself. I am not a fit companion for you. You don't know who I am. He drew back into the shadowy shelter of the bulwark as suddenly as he had come out of it. Oh, God, I can't tell him, he said to himself in a whisper. For a moment, and for a moment only, Alan was surprised. Not know who you are? Even as he repeated the words, his easy good humor got the upper hand again. He took up the whiskey flask and shook it significantly. I say, he resumed, how much of the doctor's medicine did you take while I was up in the mizzen top? The light tone which he persisted in adopting stung Midwinter to the last pitch of exasperation. He came out again into the light and stamped his foot angrily on the deck. Listen to me, he said. You don't know half the low things I've done in my lifetime. I've been a tradesman's drudge. I have swept out the shop and put up the shutters. I have carried parcels through the streets and waited for my master's money at his customer's doors. I have never done anything half as useful, returned Alan composedly. Dear old boy, what an industrious fellow you have been in your time. I have been a vagabond and a blackguard in my time, returned the other fiercely. I have been a street tumbler, a tramp, a gypsy's boy. I have sung for halfpence with dancing dogs on the high road. I've worn a footboy's livery and waited at table. I've been a common sailor's cook and a starving fisherman's jack-of-all-trades. 
What has a gentleman in your position in common with a man in mine? Can you take me into the society at Thorpe Ambrose? Why, my very name would be a reproach to you. Fancy the faces of your new neighbors when their footmen announce Ozias Midwinter and Alan Armadale in the same breath. He burst into a harsh laugh, and repeated the two names again, with a scornful bitterness of emphasis, which insisted pitilessly on the marked contrast between them. Something in the sound of his laughter jarred painfully even on Alan's easy nature. He raised himself on the deck, and spoke seriously for the first time. "'A joke's a joke, Midwinter,' he said, "'as long as you don't carry it too far.' I remember your saying something of the same sort to me once before when I was nursing you in Somersetshire. You forced me to ask you if I deserved to be kept at arm's length, by you of all people in the world. Don't force me to say so again. Make as much fun of me as you please, old fellow, in any other way. That way hurts me. Simple as the words were, and simply as they had been spoken, they appeared to work an instant revolution in Midwinter's mind. His impressible nature recoiled as from some sudden shock. Without a word of reply, he walked away by himself to the forward part of the ship. He sat down on some piled planks between the masts, and passed his hand over his head in a vacant, bewildered way. Though his father's belief in fatality was his own belief once more, though there was no longer the shadow of a doubt in his mind that the woman whom Mr. Brock had met in Somersetshire and the woman who had tried to destroy herself in London were one and the same. Though all the horror that mastered him when he first had read the letter from Wildbad had now mastered him again, Alan's appeal to their past experience of each other had come home to his heart, with a force more irresistible than the force of his superstition itself. In the strength of that very superstition, he now sought a pretext which might encourage him to sacrifice every less generous feeling to the one predominant dread of wounding the sympathies of his friend. "'Why distress him?' he whispered to himself. "'We are not the end here. There is the woman behind us in the dark. Why resist him when the mischief's done, and the caution comes too late? What is to be will be. What have I to do with the future, and what has he?' He went back to Alan, sat down by his side, and took his hand. "'Forgive me,' he said gently. "'I have hurt you for the last time.' Before it was possible to reply, he snatched up the whiskey flask from the deck. Come, he exclaimed, with a sudden effort to match his friend's cheerfulness. You have been trying the doctor's medicine. Why shouldn't I? Alan was delighted. This is something like a change for the better, he said. Midwinter is himself again. Hark, there are the birds. Hail, smiling morn, smiling morn. He sang the words of the glee in his old cheerful voice, and clapped Midwinter on the shoulder in his old hearty way. How did you manage to clear your mind of those confounded megrams? Do you know you were quite alarming about something happening to one or other of us before we were out of this ship? Sheer nonsense, returned Midwinter contemptuously. I don't think my head has ever been quite right since that fever. I've got a bee in my bonnet, as they say in the north. Let's talk of something else. About those people you have let the cottage to. I wonder whether the agent's account of Major Milroy's family is to be depended on. There might be another lady in the household besides his wife and his daughter. Oh, ho! cried Alan. You're beginning to think of nymphs among the trees and flirtations in the fruit garden, are you? Another lady, eh? 
Suppose the Major's family circle won't supply another. We shall have to spend that half-crown again, and toss up for which is to have the first chance with Miss Milroy. For once, Midwinter spoke as lightly and carelessly as Allan himself. No, no, he said. The Major's landlord has the first claim to the notice of the Major's daughter. I'll retire into the background, and wait for the next lady who makes her appearance at Thorpe Ambrose. Very good. I'll have an address to the woman of Norfolk posted in the park to that effect, said Allan. Are you particular to a shade about size or complexion? What's your favorite age? Midwinter trifled with his own superstition, as a man trifles with the loaded gun that may kill him, or with the savage animal that may maim him for life. He mentioned the age, as he reckoned it himself, of the woman in the black gown and the red paisley shawl. Five and thirty, he said. As the words passed his lips, his factitious spirits deserted him. He left his seat, impenetrably deaf to all Allan's efforts to rally him on his extraordinary answer, and resumed his restless pacing of the deck in dead silence. Once more the haunting thought, which had gone to and fro with him in the hour of darkness, went to and fro with him now in the hour of daylight. Once more the conviction possessed itself of his mind that something was to happen or to Allan or to himself before they left the wreck. Minute by minute the light strengthened in the eastern sky, and the shadowy places on the deck of the timber ship revealed their barren emptiness under the eye of day. As the breeze rose again, the sea began to murmur wakefully in the morning light. Even the cold bubbling of the broken water changed its cheerless note, and softened on the ear as the mellowing flood of daylight poured warm over it from the rising sun. Midwinter paused near the forward part of the ship, and recalled his wandering attention to the passing time. The cheering influences of the hour were round him, look where he might. The happy morning smile of the summer sky, so brightly merciful to the old and weary earth, lavished its all-embracing beauty even on the wreck. The dew that lay glittering on the inland fields lay glittering on the deck, and the worn and rusted rigging was gemmed as brightly as the fresh green leaves on shore. Insensibly, as he looked round, Midwinter's thoughts reverted to the comrade who had shared with him the adventure of the night. He returned to the after part of the ship, spoke to Allan as he advanced. Receiving no answer, he approached the recumbent figure and looked closer at it. Left to his own resources, Allan had let the fatigues of the night take their own way with him. His head had sunk back, his hat had fallen off, he lay stretched at full length on the deck of the timber ship, deeply and peacefully asleep. Midwinter resumed his walk, his mind lost in doubt, his own past thoughts seeming suddenly to have grown strange to him. How darkly his forebodings had distrusted the coming time, and how harmlessly that time had come. The sun was mounting in the heavens, the hour of release was drawing nearer and nearer, and of the two Armadales imprisoned in the fatal ship, one was sleeping away the weary time, the other was quietly watching the growth of the new day. The sun climbed higher, the hour wore on. With the latent distrust of the wreck which still clung to him, Midwinter looked inquiringly on either shore for signs of awakening human life. The land was still lonely. The smoke wreaths that were soon to rise from cottage chimneys had not risen yet. After a moment's thought, he went back again to the after part of the vessel, to see if there might be a fisherman's boat within hail astern of them. Absorbed for the moment by a new idea, he passed Allan hastily, 
after barely noticing that he still lay asleep. One step more would have brought him to the taffrail, when that step was suspended by a sound beneath him, a sound like a faint groan. He turned and looked at the sleeper on the deck. He knelt softly and looked closer. It has come, he whispered to himself, not to me, but to him. It had come in the bright freshness of the morning. It had come in the mystery and terror of a dream. The face which Midwinter had last seen in perfect repose was now the distorted face of a suffering man. The perspiration stood thick on Allan's forehead and matted his curling hair. His partially opened eyes showed nothing but the white of the eyeball gleaming blindly. His outstretched hands scratched and struggled on the deck. From moment to moment he moaned and muttered helplessly, but the words that escaped him were lost to the grinding and gnashing of his teeth. There he lay, so near in the body to the friend who bent over him, so far away in the spirit that the two might have been in different worlds. There he lay, with the morning sunshine on his face, in the torture of his dream. One question, and one only, rose in the mind of the man who was looking at him. What had the fatality which had imprisoned him in the wreck decreed that he should see? Had the treachery of sleep opened the gates of the grave to that one of the two Armadales whom the other had kept in ignorance of the truth? Was the murder of the father revealing itself to the son, there on the very spot where the crime had been committed, in the vision of a dream? With that question overshadowing all else in his mind, the son of the homicide knelt on the deck, and looked at the son of the man whom his father's hand had slain. The conflict between the sleeping body and the waking mind was strengthening every moment. The dreamer's helpless groaning for deliverance grew louder. His hands raised themselves and clutched at the empty air. Struggling with the all-mastering dread that still held him, Midwinter laid his hand gently on Allan's forehead. Light as the touch was, there were mysterious sympathies in the dreaming man that answered it. His groaning ceased, and his hands dropped slowly. There was an instant of suspense, and Midwinter looked closer. His breath just fluttered over the sleeper's face. Before the next breath had risen to his lips, Allan sprang up on his knees, sprang up as if the call of a trumpet had rung in his ear, awake in an instant. "'You have been dreaming,' said Midwinter, as the other looked at him wildly in the first bewilderment of waking." Allan's eyes began to wander about the wreck, at first vacantly, then with a look of angry surprise. "'Are we still here?' he said, as Midwinter helped him to his feet. "'Whatever else I do on board this infernal ship,' he added, after a moment, "'I won't go to sleep again.' As he said those words, his friend's eyes searched his face in silent inquiry. They took a turn together on the deck. "'Tell me your dream,' said Midwinter." with a strange tone of suspicion in his voice, and a strange appearance of abruptness in his manner. "'I can't tell it yet,' returned Allan. "'Wait a little till I'm my own man again.' They took another turn on the deck. Midwinter stopped and spoke once more. "'Look at me for a moment, Allan,' he said. There was something of the trouble left by the dream, and something of natural surprise at the strange request just addressed to him in Allan's face, as he turned it full on the speaker but no shadow of ill-will, no lurking lines of distrust anywhere. Midwinter turned aside quickly, and hid, as he best might, an irrepressible outburst of relief. "'Do I look a little upset?' asked Allan, taking his arm and leading him on again. 
Don't make yourself nervous about me if I do. My head feels wild and giddy, but I shall soon get over it. For the next few minutes, they walked backward and forward in silence, the one bent on dismissing the terror of the dream from his thoughts, the other bent on discovering what the terror of the dream might be. Relieved of the dread that had oppressed it, the superstitious nature of Midwinter had leaped to its next conclusion at a bound. What if the sleeper had been visited by another revelation than the revelation of the past? What if the dream had opened those unturned pages in the book of the future which told the story of his life to come? The bare doubt that it might be so strengthened tenfold Midwinter's longing to penetrate the mystery which Allan's silence still kept secret from him. "'Is your head more composed?' he asked. "'Can you tell me your dream now?' While he put the question, a last memorable moment in the adventure of the wreck was at hand. They had reached the stern, and were just turning again when Midwinter spoke. As Allan opened his lips to answer, he looked out mechanically to see. Instead of replying, he suddenly ran to the taffrail and waved his hat over his head in a shout of exultation. Midwinter joined him and saw a large six-oared boat pulling straight for the channel of the sound. A figure which they both thought they recognized rose eagerly in the stern sheets and returned the waving of Alan's hat. The boat came nearer, the steersman called out to them cheerfully, and they recognized the doctor's voice. "'Thank God you're both above water,' said Mr. Hawbury, as they met him on the deck of the timber ship. "'Of all the winds of heaven, which wind blew you here?' He looked at Midwinter as he made the inquiry, but it was Alan who told him the story of the night, and Alan who asked the doctor for information in return. The one absorbing interest in Midwinter's mind, the interest of penetrating the mystery of the dream, kept him silent throughout. Heedless of all that was said or done about him, he watched Alan, and followed Alan like a dog, until the time came for getting down into the boat. Mr. Hawbury's professional eye rested on him curiously, noting his varying color and the incessant restlessness of his hands. I wouldn't change nervous systems with that man for the largest fortune that could be offered me, thought the doctor, as he took the boat's tiller and gave the oarsmen their order to push off from the wreck. Having reserved all explanations on his side until they were on their way back to Port St. Mary, Mr. Hawbury next addressed himself to the gratification of Allan's curiosity. The circumstances which had brought him to the rescue of his two guests of the previous evening were simple enough. The lost boat had been met with at sea by some fishermen of Port Aaron, on the western side of the island, who at once recognized it as the doctor's property, and at once sent a messenger to make inquiry at the doctor's house. The man's statement of what had happened had naturally alarmed Mr. Hawbury for the safety of Allan and his friend. He had immediately secured assistance, and, guided by the boatman's advice, had made first for the most dangerous place on the coast, the only place in that calm weather in which an accident could have happened to a boat sailed by experienced men, the channel of the sound. After thus accounting for his welcome appearance on the scene, the doctor hospitably insisted that his guests of the evening should be his guests of the morning as well. It would still be too early when they got back for the people at the hotel to receive them, and they would find bed and breakfast at Mr. Hawbury's house. At the first pause in the conversation between Allan and the doctor, Midwinter, who had neither joined in the talk nor listened to the talk, touched his friend on the arm. "'Are you better?' he asked in a whisper. "'Shall you be soon composed enough to tell me what I want to know?' 
Alan's eyebrows contracted impatiently. The subject of the dream, and Midwinter's obstinacy in returning to it, seemed to be alike distasteful to him. He hardly answered with his usual good humor. I suppose I shall have no peace till I tell you, he said, so I may as well get it over at once. No, returned Midwinter, with a look at the doctor and the oarsman. Not where other people can hear it. Not till you and I are alone. If you wish to see the last, gentlemen, of your quarters for the night, interposed the doctor, now is your time. The coast will shut the vessel out in a minute more. In silence, on the one side and on the other, the two Armadales looked their last at the fatal ship. Lonely and lost they had found the wreck in the mystery of the summer night. Lonely and lost they left the wreck in the radiant beauty of the summer morning. An hour later, the doctor had seen his guests established in their bedrooms, and had left them to take their rest until the breakfast hour arrived. Almost as soon as his back was turned, the doors of both rooms opened softly, and Alan and Midwinter met in the passage. "'Can you sleep after what has happened?' asked Alan. Midwinter shook his head. "'You were coming to my room, were you not?' he said. "'What for?' "'To ask you to keep me company. What were you coming to my room for?' "'To ask you to tell me your dream.' "'Damn the dream! I want to forget all about it. And I want to know all about it.' Both paused. Both refrained instinctively from saying more. For the first time since the beginning of their friendship, they were on the verge of a disagreement, and that on the subject of the dream. Alan's good temper just stopped them on the brink. "'You are the most obstinate fellow alive,' he said. "'But if you will know all about it, you must know all about it, I suppose. Come into my room, and I'll tell you.' He led the way, and Midwinter followed. The door closed and shut them in together. End of chapter 4, part 2 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com